Wistful Thinking is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies and nostalgia, visit cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome to Wistful Thinking, the podcast where we revisit pop culture from our youth to see if it's as good all grown up, and that's not our real intro anymore, but I'm going to keep saying it forever. I'm Jordan <laughs> Pullen clark With me is my co-host, Cara Gail O'Regan. Hello. And welcome to Surrealist February. Ooh. I don't know why I thought that was the appropriate noise, but that's what came out. It's a little spooky it, sometimes. Yeah, but I feel like maybe it should have been more of a like honking noise and like a. Well, well just... mm, I think any of them would have been appropriate, but I think even more appropriate is to everyone go ahead and do this exercise, visualize what that noise looked like. Mm-hmm. You know, give which it is what I'm doing constantly at all moments is thinking about what ooh looks yeah. like. What color is it? How big is it? Uh, what direction does it travel in? <laughs> I feel like that's more valuable, more valuable exercise even than making a noise. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we were talking about what to do next a few weeks ago and I was like browsing through movies on Hulu looking for ideas and a Luis Bunuel movie came up um, and for one semester in 2006 I'm gonna say it was <laughs> I went I went to NYU for cinema studies um, and I took four classes while I was there, and one of them was a comparative directors class on Luis Bunuel and Fritz Lang. Because oh, interesting. They, ha- yeah, they had pretty similar. They have like kind of similar stories on paper in that they were both European-born and then um, made many films outside of where they were born. Um, Fritz Lang was able to find like quite a lot of success in America and Luis Bunuel never did, but did find success in Mexico. Mexico. And well, success isn't the best word for what he found there. Um, (laughs) He made money there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but then, and then had like a resurgence at the end of his career where he was very successful um, making films in Europe again, but like to international acclaim. Um, so, so yeah, it was a, it was a class comparing the two and I, I just fell in love with Luis Bunuel because, well, for the same reasons I fell in love with David Lynch, but I think that Luis Bunuel is a lot funnier. Mm. Um, yeah. He's cheeky. I so if you're not familiar with who, well, Kara, had you seen any of his movies before this? So the only one that I had seen, I had seen many times because I went to art school. And right. if you're, you're going to see a Luis Bunuel film in art school, it's probably going to be Un Chien Andalou, um, which is exactly what it was. I think I watched it in three or four different classes. Like that's um, but I had never, yeah. yeah, but I had never seen any of the other ones. So this was, this was really fun and exciting for me uh, to explore his work, which then, you know, like opened up a door back to Salvador Dali, who of course I did study. Um, Cause I had always approached surrealism from a fine art perspective and not as much looking at the film or literature ends of it. So this has been an interesting um, 
experiment for me to go back and learn about. I can't wait to hear more about it. I'm going to first talk uh, before that, though. I will talk about the... Well, Kara watched three movies. I watched two. Three movies and a scene from another one. What scene did you... Oh, did you watch the toilet scene? Yes, which I loved so much. It's It's the best scene of any movie ever. Um, Yeah. So... But I've seen everything that she watched I just didn't do as good a job refreshing on all of it um so she'll have to help me through one of them in particular but so we watched we watched as she mentioned Unchen Andalou which is from 1929 yeah that sounds right uh so it's a and it's a film that um Bunuel and Dali co-wrote and made together and the way that they well so and the way that they got the idea is that they were hanging out they were friends um well so this is i don't think i realized this but they were like art school bros yeah they were (laughs) which oh hilarious just thinking and them and one other guy whose name i don't remember but like also made stuff um and just like thinking about them just like hanging out and being like yo bro wouldn't it be so cool if like we did this thing. Yeah, because uh, so like, Bunuel didn't start out like intending to be a filmmaker. He just like, I forget what movie it was. He like saw some movie ones and got super obsessed with it and was like, oh, well, this is what I want to do. Um, <laughs> and so they they were hanging out one day and they were like, uh, Dolly was like, I had this weird dream where the moon turned into an eyeball and it got sliced in half. And then uh Bunuel was like huh yeah I had this weird dream where like ants were coming out of this guy's hand and they were like well that's a movie oh and... that's so interesting because the ants on the hand is such a Dali image to me I like think... it's interesting on, that it me, came I'll from I'll make sure that I'm right I think those yeah. are who the dreams belonged to but I will check oh I mean I, I I'm not I'm not saying that it's not um, no I might just... I might have totally mixed them up because you're yeah. right well yeah because uh ants and like cracks and holes and things are uh, a repeated uh, motif in, in many Dali's paintings. And I think like some of his nope. other yeah, multimedia right. work as well. You're yeah. right. Bunuel had the moon dream and Dali had the ants dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the way that they made it, they wrote it like in a very short amount of time and they sat together and like the only, the rule was that like, basically it was it was only allowed to be nonsense like it was only allowed to be like dream stuff um they were not allowed to like try to explain any of it they didn't try to explain any of it um and so one of them would look at the other one and be like what about this and if they were both like yes they did it. <laughs> is this and, anything <laughs> and if and if one of them was like no they didn't do it <laughs> that's how everything in this got made um, and it's it's very Lynchian in that they're basically like, no, don't try to look for the meaning. Like, that's not the point. Yeah. Is it Lynchian or is it Lynch's Bunuelian? It's Bunuelian. <laughs> well, questionable, because I would argue that most of his other films are very purposeful. It, like, this is, like, very abstract. He, mm-hmm. they made, so him and Dali made one other short film together that's actually much longer it's almost an hour long or maybe it is an hour long um that is also very abstract and then everything else he made does have some kind of narrative and generally some kind of purpose that's that you can read into 
and assume that he had some kind of thoughts and was making a point when he made it. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think it would be a good idea for us to talk about the origins of surrealism and what surrealism is before we go any further. Cool. I think right? you'll do better at that than me. Do you want to do it? Um, yeah, I'm going to pull up the Wikipedia article. That's, I just read it also, <laughs> but like you went to more art school than I did, so I feel like you'll yeah. do a better job. Yeah. Well, so um, surrealism really uh, was a, a movement that started around 1917. It was really kind of a reaction to uh, the truly nonsensical nature of World War One, um, and just like the havoc that it wreaked. But I would also say, uh, add to that also the Spanish flu, which a lot of people don't talk about in this time frame, but actually killed like three to 5% of the world's population. So in addition to this like massive, massive mortality that was happening with the war, um, also there was this massive, massive mortality killing like way more people than um world war one like and world war two i think put together um so just like if you can kind of like put your brain or attempt to i don't know if we really can put your brain in a world where that kind of thing is happening um like nothing makes sense and and everything is horrifying and it just kind of all seems like a nightmare um so that was really kind of the the catalyst for that movement in particular. But prior to World War One, there was a movement called Dadaism, which was really, um, and this is where I, I have to lean on some um, definitions because it's hard to explain. But uh, Dadaism was an art movement of the European avant-garde in the early 20th century um, that started kind of in Switzerland and France, um, and I guess, was it also a reaction to World War One? I? I don't know. I thought it predated it, but now that I'm looking at this Wikipedia article, I might be wrong, or the Wikipedia article might be wrong, so who knows. Anyway, Dadaism was, like, kind of an anti-art movement that, like, cut up, like, all of the ideas about, like, what art was and aestheticism and, like, modern capitalist society and, and, and kind of turned it on its head. Um, the most famous of the Dadaists being, um, what's his name? Marcel Duchamp. And the piece of his that most people who didn't go to art school might know is the toilet. He just like took a urinal and turned it upside down and was like, this is art. And everyone was like, what? And that's Dadaism. Um, so that was the precursor to surrealism, which relied really heavily on the subconscious and dream states. Um, it was also very he heavily influenced by um, the movements in psychology by Freud and Jung and like all of that sort of like stuff that's going on in the back of your brain. Um, am I making any sense? I mean, to me you are. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just, I, I didn't really like plan this out before I started talking. So I'm not, I'm not even sure where I am. Um, but the surrealists were actually like this kind of formalized, group in France uh, led by André Breton um, and they you know they fancied themselves uh, kind of intellectuals and revolutionaries and etc cetera, etc cetera. they sound like a real nightmare group of dudes um, yeah, like they not really, fun to I be around they really do. like, the, like when I read about all these men I'm like god 
this is one of my favorite parts from um, Bunuel's Wikipedia is, hold on, he dated this woman for five years, and then, gosh, I want to find the exact quote. She basically was like, and then I broke up with him because he was completely insufferable and horrible to be around. <laughs> like, I'm sure they yep. were all like that. Yeah. Well, Bunuel was actually like, I, I forget if it was Bunuel or... Um... Dolly, now that I'm thinking about it, one of them was, like, uh, excommunicated from the group because of, like, they didn't, you know, play by the rules. And it just, I, it's so funny to me that, like, this group of, I, I don't know, people who are, like, trying to do some sort of, like, anti-art thing because art takes itself too seriously would then also take themselves so seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was why I hated art school. <laughs> Because everyone takes themselves can I, too seriously. Can, can I go on a detour for a second? This is sure. this is one of my favorite things that I remember about this class, is that like yes, like like we were watching these like you know nonsense films, and like I was not like I'm not an intellectual, I'm not an academic, like I felt very out of place, like in that program, um, and so one time we watched. We watched one of his films. I kind of think it was, like, one of his Mexican melodramas, which was, like, mm-hmm. a lot of them were, like, very straightforward, except he would still, like, find these ways to, like, sneak himself into them, you know? Um, and How, how Lynchian. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, yeah. So, uh, but it, not in a lynch, like, in very subtle ways. Because um, mm-hmm. they were, like, money makers, you know, like... At people went to see them. They weren't art films. Um, right. Uh, but in one of them, there's just a shot of a raw piece of meat. And I'm sitting in this class, and we're talking about what is the meat. And at some point, somebody raised their hand and answered the question, and they said, what if the meat is just meat? And I was like, thank you! <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just, like, so appreciative of, like a voice not like, maybe, trying... you guys maybe it's not that yeah, deep yeah <laughs> like like a like a person who was just like not trying to read too deep into every little detail because i mm-hmm. personally found that incredibly stressful in this like too. very academic world of like smart people yeah. um that's like one of the biggest things i remember from that class is just being like oh it's okay to just think about it like that sometimes mm-hmm. yeah i find i don't i wouldn't necessarily say i find it stressful i just find it deeply exhausting yeah um one of the classes that i wound up seeing this and like a couple other surrealist films um like cocteau's orpheus and mm, i'm like forgetting the other couple but uh we watched it in a class that i took called existentialist paris which oh boy was a real snoozer um but like that was another thing that was kind of like going on during this time um like intellectual in intellectual circles in uh paris that was really like the epicenter of the surrealist movement during the 20s and 30s um but yeah, no, I just remember sitting through that entire class just being like, why? <laughs> Who cares? We're all going to die. Who cares? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, cer- like, it always comes back to that for me. It's fun and interesting to analyze shit. But yeah, mm-hmm. at a certain point, like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, okay, is that, do you want to well, say that's more the episode. You, <laughs> so we could stop it right there. Who cares? Um, do you want to say more things about surrealism? 
Um, not right now, but I, they, they might come up as we talk. Okay. Um, so that was one movie we watched, um, which is, I think, his most famous film by far. Yes. Like, I think art school students far and wide in many dis- <laughs> different disciplines are made to watch this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on YouTube if you're listening and you want to watch it. It's on YouTube in its entirety. Um, the version that I watched, um, so the the title cards are in French, but the version that I watched had Spanish subtitles. Same, so I, I was like, I don't one. know what's going on. I, and then I, I like looked up what they all said. I did too, and then I was like, oh, okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter, but it does. I I appreciated the like feeling because they were all um, cards indicating how much time had passed or Mm -hmm. like some of them were how much time has passed one of them was like eight years later one of them was like 15 years earlier one of them just says spring like they're 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 meant to place you in time and also it's not like it makes sense anyway um both Dali and Bunuel appear in that film and I didn't recognize either of them. I recognized Bunuel, but had to go back and be like, yeah, I guess that's Dolly. Um, yeah, well, I think because like, our f- image of, of him is as a much older artist. And like he had like a, like the, the images that we're familiar with of Dolly with like the, the wacky twisted mustache yeah. and everything. That was like he had figured that out a little bit later. And it's like, because this was a very, very early young. work for both of them yeah yeah um okay so the the next movie we watched is um called the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie which is a 1972 film that Benwell made in france question mark it's, it's in, in french, french. yeah <laughs> it's a little bit in spanish but yeah okay we're gonna say he made it in france um and he made it uh, like in his kind of resurgence like there was a period where he was like yep nope that's my last movie I'm done now and then he made like three more movies after that and they were some what are you his... Steven Soderbergh <laughs> but the, the like those films are like definitely some of the more memorable ones yeah um, well also it's the last stuff that he made like so I, I always find this so interesting about art and stuff is that like we remember what is most recent and not necessarily what is best or most poignant, I think. I mean, even for surrealism, the surrealists that we think of as surrealists, like that are, you know, banner um, icons of the movement are people who are working later. People like Dali and Bunuel and Frida Kahlo and, um, you know, like these are, are, are kind of like the last vestiges of the movement and not necessarily really um, pivotal. I mean, they're obviously very influential, but not necessarily for that specific movement and instead for subsequent movements. And I think a lot of times with artists individually for their body of work, that is also true. I take, I actually take that back because now I'm thinking about all of his films and my favorite, Mm -hmm. my favorite one actually falls in the middle. Mm. Um, it's a, 
movie about actually my two favorite ones fall in the middle ish uh i the best one is a movie called the exterminating angel which is a movie about a bunch of rich people who go to a dinner party and then when the party's over and they all try to leave they just can't leave and there's no explanation why and so like which is basically the plot to every one of his movies (laughs) yes yeah like before when I was like no you actually can read into a lot of the things he does it's because so many of his themes recur over and over um Mm -hmm. but I and taken together they mean a lot but like individually I think it's harder to read into no in his it's pretty easy <laughs> like they're like they not that he beats you over the head with it but it's just like he's cheeky they're right there like he wants you to see them you know mm-hmm. um so that one's pretty awesome um but so anyway okay discreet charm um 1972 it won the oscar for best um foreign film in 1973 and he refused to come to the ceremony because he was like I don't care about that so his producer accepted the award but then they they asked him to please take a picture with his Oscars so he did but he put on like a wig and like silly glasses <laughs> she just like it's like, was clearly like such a joke to him yeah I'm um, looking up the picture now so this movie is about a group of <laughs> You look at the picture. Yeah. Um, uh, this reminds me that uh, Bong Joon-ho recently in an interview was like, I don't really care about the Oscars. I mean, they're they're really a local film festival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like such a sick burn and so good. That's but anyway, great. continue. Um, yeah. So this movie is about six uh, wealthy people who for the entire film are trying to get together to eat food and they never do they're constantly interrupted um by ridiculous and hilarious things i actually really like the way that robert roger ebert described it so i'm going to read it um he says the joke in the discreet charm is the way that Benuel interrupts the meals with the secrets that lurk beneath the surface of his decaying european or aristocracy uh witlessness what that is a hard word <laughs> i'm gonna try it again <laughs> witlessness adultery drug dealing cheating military coups pervasion and the paralysis of boredom his central characters are politicians the military and the rich but in a gen- in a generous mood he throws in a supporting character to make fun of the church a bishop whose fetish is to dress up as a gardener and work as a servant in the gardens of the wealthy um See, so yeah, that was like a short list of things that they are interrupted by. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't include the time that they're interrupted by a dead body in the restaurant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and there are also just a lot of scheduling kerfuffles where they're like, no, we said this time. And they're like, there's no way we said this time. And they just argue about it for a while. Um, it's... Yeah. Kara, what were your impressions of this movie? You had not seen it before. I had seen it a lot of times. No, I just had fun. I really liked it. I loved the gardener priest. Yeah, he's pretty funny. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I would do that too. I would be like, can I just work in your garden? He has one of the best scenes in the movie that, like, so so the thing that most of Benoit's films do is they go off on, like, tangents that you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Like... Yes, there are our main characters, but then for like a whole 
portion of the movie, it will just follow somebody else and then like boop on back to the people you used to right. be and it has with. no bearing on like the larger no, story. Not at all. Um, uh, the pre, I think the priest has one of the best one of those where he the uh there's like a woman he goes to give somebody their last yeah. somebody who's on their deathbed and um yeah will you tell it okay well earlier he had explained i guess to the mistress of the house that um his parents had died when he was very young and that their gardener had murdered them i don't think he says that does he say no, it No, he definitely like does. Oh, okay. Oh, well, I don't know if he says, like, and the gardener murdered them. He might have, like, said it more artfully than that. I think it, it was a, little, it's a that. little bit of a reveal when the this scene happens, but okay, keep going. Yeah, but anyway, so he goes to give this guy his last rites, and the guy makes his deathbed confession that he worked as a gardener and killed his bosses, and it turns out that that was the parent's of this priest and then the priest murders the guy <laughs> yeah i don't know why i'm laughing he like no but it's it is funny like he pretends like he's not gonna murder him too he's like oh i forgive you like it's okay like bye and then he's walking out of the room and he picks up a gun and like slowly loads it and just shoots him yeah um it's it's well paced um, it is and and well. if you so you'll you this happens in like if if Benuel can find a way to be like fuck religion, he will do it. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very recurring theme in his films, less so in this one, but obviously is still there. Um, yeah, which uh, um, like contextually is important to understand, the, like the incredibly huge and oppressive role that the Catholic church played in Spain at this time and pretty much always, but um, like when he was growing up was like a very regressive and oppressive time where the Catholic church really kind of ruled over everything. And that is a great recipe for, to make an angry artist who wants to say, fuck the church at all possible opportunities. His best. I, I, I've, can't remember and haven't seen all of the all of his movies but the one that i think is his best fuck the church movie is one called simon of the desert um which is short you should watch it i'm sure it's on youtube um it's a movie i i'm i think simon was probably a real dude or based on a real dude but i don't know anything about um christian religions or almost nothing um but it's this dude who lives in this like small town and he is like he's like doing I haven't seen it in a long time he's like doing some kind of like hunger strike and like he's standing atop this pedestal um and like a part of the joke of the movie is he like super likes the attention that he gets from standing even though that's like not supposed to be part of it Um, oh it's always part of it though but he yeah (laughs) but so he also um he starts to get tortured by um like somebody's like taunting him or and it turns out in the end it's the devil and it's a lady and she dances naked at the end and it's pretty great um i like that one um okay discreet charm so um the thing that i could think about most not most while i was watching this this time but i was like kara must be obsessed with all of their outfits the women's (laughs) outfits yeah they are good like really good like 70s Mm-hmm. French, like well put together ladies. Um, my favorite, the first time I laughed out loud is where they go, they go to this restaurant 
it's it's the second time they're trying to eat together um the first is like a messed up scheduling thing so they're like well okay but i know this restaurant it's really close to here let's just go to the restaurant they're like okay so they drive to the restaurant they go it's locked and then the staff opens the door and they're like are you sure you're open and they're like yeah no no no, it's fine come in and they go in and it's completely empty um and they find out that that's because the owner has died that day and they have his body just like laying in the kitchen and they're all like surrounding him and they loved him so much and whatever and one of the women goes he died with that suit on because he's like all dressed up and i just thought that that was so funny it's um it's like she's almost pointing out that she knows she's in a movie like i don't know i love it i laughed um you go i actually <clears throat> I watched this many weeks ago, it feels like, at this point, because we were going to do this episode sooner than now, but my body turned into a hot bag of soup. It was a whole thing. I had a near-death experience, and we had to postpone this episode, so it's been a while since I watched it, it, like it and a lot has happened. It was like yeah. And it's, yeah. it's not a particularly easy movie to remember to begin with, because it's... Yeah, because it doesn't have a real narrative no. structure or <laughs> anything like that. I mean, it it does a little bit at the beginning, and then, like, really falls apart. Um, yeah. It does. <laughs> so... It all starts to feel very surreal, but you're like, okay, I'm still here for this. Like, this is all still a thing that we're supposed to believe is kind of really happening. And then there's a scene where they all are sitting down at another dinner table. And uh, a servant comes out with, um, like, a chicken, uh, like, a on a platter but it doesn't. It looks kind of plasticky. But you're like, okay, whatever. I don't know. Maybe this is the time they're gonna eat. Here we go. Um, and he drops it on the floor, and you realize <laughs> it's just a prop chicken. Um, mm-hmm. And you find that they are on um, a theater stage, <laughs> um, and it's like a play that they don't know that they're in. And then from there on out, it's just like a series of essentially people waking up from either being in their own dream or in somebody else's dream and you're like okay what is this where are we is any of this real and it doesn't matter yeah it's all just a dream within a dream within a nightmare within a who cares (laughs) pretty much yeah but in a fun way not in like a it's not like it's it sounds lazy to say they used like a oh that was all a dream and that's not how it feels at all no it's definitely layered enough and like um, it's intricate is how I would describe the kind of like dreamscape in this movie that like you never know what is the dream and maybe it's all a dream, but why are they all walking on a road and I don't know. It was fun. I liked it a lot. And similarly to Unshanandalu, um, the some of the kind of like very non sequitur things in this are just based on real dreams that like Benuel had had um like the one about the cousin the dead cousin he like meets the guy oh when does that one even happen it's like close to the end and then there's the other one there's another one about the guy with his dead mom like and I've definitely had nightmares about being on a stage in a production that I didn't know was happening yeah yeah (laughs) that's probably a pretty common one (sighs) yeah I'm stressed out just thinking about it 
my favorite character is Florence, the alcoholic sister, because I feel like she's <laughs> the only one who's like kind of admitting the shitty reality they live in, and she's yeah. just like, "Well, I'll get drunk. Who cares? Like, this is all a joke anyway." Like, I feel like she's actually maybe the smartest one, even though they, she's treated like the dumbest one. Yeah. So I appreciate her. Okay, anything else that you want to say about this movie? I don't think so. I didn't take any notes because I was like, what would I even write down? That's, it's a definitely a difficult one to talk about, especially... I think it's also a difficult one to talk about as a standalone movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can... Well, yeah, because it, it, it has... Like, because it doesn't really have any actual meaning to it. So, like, uh, like again, on its own, it doesn't really mean anything. But, like, taken as part of a body of work, it there's more sense to it. And it, it makes it easier to talk about, like, in the context of his other work than just alone as, like... A movie. Yeah, and I do I do think it is something that, like, yeah, we can sit here and be like, well, you know, he did this because he hates this structure and he hates, you know, and he's trying to fight against whatever. And we can say all that, but the, it is so... Film is a visual medium, and this truly is something that, like, if you want to understand what he was doing and how he was doing, like, just watch it. It is actually, like, kind of challenging to talk about it. Um, yeah. And challenging to watch, too, because it doesn't work the way that we're trained to expect movies no. to work. There's no music in it. Oh, I didn't even notice. No music. And um, did you notice the. There was two I think there's two there might have been three times in the movie where the sound is purposefully blocked out by um an airplane noise oh huh. I don't, I might have noticed it at the time but it did not stick with me it's it's funny you should go back and find those parts um I don't know if this is real or not but Bunuel has said that like he did all the sound in this movie and everyone is like yeah and he was very old and almost deaf at the time <laughs> <laughs> um, but there Amazing. are these like few very well placed um, sounds that make no sense like they're not outside you don't see an airplane it's just that it's just this noise pollution um, for a brief amount of time so that's I, I that's different and definitely watching a movie without music the the like when I think of what this movie sounds like, all I hear are their footsteps, like the sounds oh, of their shoes, like walking yeah. through, like through that nothingness that like repeats over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's that's the music of this film. Okay, so then the other one that Kara watched that I've not seen in a long time uh, was a movie called Land Without Bread. It has a real, it has a Spanish name. I don't remember what Las it is. Las Hurtes Tierras in Pan, which translates to Land Without Bread. Thank you. Yeah. Um, which and, and Las Hurtes is the the name of the like mountain range yeah. that mm-hmm. it takes place in. Do you want to talk about that one since you did just watch it? 
Um, yeah, I really liked it a lot. It was very interesting. It's, um, what year was that from? It's an earlier, like 30, 1933. Yeah. Um, which I think is the first year of the Spanish Civil War, like right before the Spanish Civil War started. Um, but yeah, so this is one of the few films actually that he made in Spain. Um, and it's, it seems like a documentary, but it's not really. Um, so it's been called like the first mockumentary. Um, but really it's, it's, it's like part documentary, but also part scripted. Some of the stuff um, is staged like there's this shot of a goat falling off a mountain that I was like how'd they get that shot <laughs> turns out they just threw a goat off a mountain so they could get the shot which is like not great but whatever it was 1933 anyway and they made um, their point <laughs> and they made their point it's it's basically about um the uh, society of people living in this extremely remote area of Spain, extremely impoverished. And the whole point of it is that like people don't have to live like this if the government like just gave them services and like made a real road and stuff like people could um, be living in much better circumstances. But then it also has kind of like a uncomfortable kind of ethnographic feel to it where it's like oh god look at these people look how they're living um so it's it's an interesting kind of blend of a, a lot of things that is really um a precursor to a lot of pseudo documentary work that would come much later and it pissed people off. how else to describe it yeah and i can see why it was it was banned <laughs> like after its premiere, like, they were not allowed to show it in Spain anymore. Yes. Because uh, a lot of the surrealists identified as communists, and Bunuel, I don't think, ever, like, officially, you know, came down on one side of the one side or the other of that. But it, the film itself, like, many of his films, very critical of the status quo and of um, the economic realities of what actually was going on in Spain that would lead to the Spanish Civil War and get worse because of that. Um, yeah, so he actually had been like exiled from Spain, I think, after Franco came into power because of his extremely subversive work. Um, doesn't doesn't sit well with the authoritarians in general. Um, yeah, I don't know. What else could I say about that? <laughs> no, that was great. That was perfect. Yeah. Um, I, is that it? Was that all the things we watched? No, you watched the one scene from the Phantom of Liberty. Right. Um, and in that it's another, you know, fancy pants dinner party, except that it's not a dinner party because everyone is gets seated at a table that instead of chairs has toilets and everyone takes off their pants and is doing their business and, and talking and then somebody mentions how hungry they are and they're like oh that's so shameful how dare you talk about that at this table <laughs> and so then people it's actually a kid, have to... i think they like scold the kid for like right right and then we see one of the adults get up and go to a private tiny room where he then eats a meal by himself so he's taken the act of eating and going to the bathroom and kind of switched those two things where this one thing is in real life is very shameful 
He's kind of turned that on its head, and I loved it. I laughed so hard. What a brilliant, brilliant set piece that is. It's pretty perfect. That whole movie is like, we talked about the priest thing before, how it's kind of just like veered off into that direction. Like that, that's that entire movie is like, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, now we're with these people. Like it's a little bit like Slacker. Have you seen Slacker? Mm-hmm. Where I don't think so. Uh, Have I? Wait, the Richard Linklater one? Yeah. It, okay, it yes. kind of just like you start with one person and then all of a sudden you're in a scene with new people um, and you, it kind of flows there, but it doesn't follow mm-hmm. any one person or group of people. You're just like booping from person to person. Uh, that's kind of... Wait, what? Uh, what is that movie called? Slacker? No, The Phantom of Liberty. No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of how the Phantom of Liberty is structured. Like I could, t- I've seen it multiple times, and it's like it's like watching the Discreet Charm, but worse. Where like I could tell you some things that happen in it, but like every time I watch it, it's like, oh yeah, that's from this movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like it's new every time. I'm just reading his Wikipedia article now. I'm, it's very long. <laughs> I'm trying to find Simon of the Desert so you can watch it. What's that one about? That's the one where the um, religious dude is, like, standing atop the thing. He's on, like, a hunger strike. Everyone's gathering around him. And then this woman shows up and basically starts torturing him to try Mm -hmm. to get him to stop. And it turns out she's the devil. Oh, no. I want to watch all of these movies again now. Like, (laughs) I wish I could go back to that class now and watch them all again. Yeah. I mean, that's really... And here my like of I all can, of the classes. Yeah, but this one in particular, like, so I took I took four classes. I mean, I would go back and take them all again, definitely. But like this one, I think was particularly good. Like I, it was a big class, so it had like I had a professor, and then we had like smaller groups where we had like a TA where we would do like discussions and the TA actually had been someone who worked with Richard Linklater, so he talked about that a bunch and like was from Austin and. Um, and I really liked both of them in a way that I'm not sure I liked any of my other <laughs> teachers that I dealt with there. Yeah. I just feel like I just being older and just like having so much more of a sense of the world. It's so much you know? easier to like, put all this in context now and it's so much yeah. more interesting. And just like, you know, like the the... Especially, like, the work of the existentialists and, like, everything that was going on at this time. And I, it's just, like, when you're 19, like, no, you, can't, you can't, know. you have no, no frame of reference for any of that no, stuff. Like, it's like, I we're actually, all going to die? What? Yeah, like, nah. like, I feel like if I went back now, like, I might have something to say about the meat besides, like, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's just Maybe meat, it's just meat. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But my brain, like, just didn't have enough in it to even like think about it that way then yeah or even like my first year of art school I took an elective uh, called fibers and mixed media which was a fiber arts class and I had never heard of fiber art before and at the time was just like what do we do I don't what is this what's happening what are we doing and only like in the last few years have i been like fiber art is amazing like i finally get it it's anything it's it's really an umbrella term so like anything that encompasses 
fibers. So like textile based stuff, crocheting, knitting, weaving. Um, Got it. Okay. Yeah. Assemblage of fabrics or even rope kind of stuff, you know, anything that's fibrous, like our midterm was weaving a tapestry and our final project was creating a costume a full costume out of only newspaper and packing tape that sounds like a project runway which was, challenge it was very much a project runway challenge yes and it was very challenging <laughs> also sounds um, like the circus sometimes yeah but like i would give anything to go back and be able to take that class now because yeah. i just could do I feel like so much more with it or even so like that existentialist Paris class that I took was I had these two courses that semester they were back to back in the same room with the same professor who I hated um and the other one was this class called texts and contexts um which was like a category of courses offered at my school and the one that I wound up in was on the transcendentalists which I really just had no patience for at the time <laughs> it was like this is so dumb um who cares blades of grass whatever you know but like I I still think Walt Whitman had a brain tumor but I find his work a lot more interesting why do you now. think he had a brain tumor because late in his life he all of a sudden had this like spiritual awakening this transcendental awakening that like everything was incredible and just like the his writing and like descriptions of him at the time and his behavior is to me very consistent with somebody who has a brain tumor like in a certain spot that will like change your outlook on things make everything amazing it's you know like, that doesn't just happen to people. People don't all of a sudden be like, oh, my God, you guys played some grass. They do, though. Like, because I just read, oh, my God, who's the guy who wrote The Power of Now? I don't know. I don't remember his name. But that is, I mean, he was, like, horribly miserable. And then he woke up one day and was, like, a completely different person. Maybe he had a brain tumor also. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't... Oh, Eckhart Tolle? Yes. Um... Yeah, I don't think that just happens. I do. I don't think it happens to most people, but I do think yeah. it does can happen. I mean, I would love for that to happen. To, can I wake up tomorrow and have everything be amazing, please? Because everything is pretty terrible yeah, right now. Well, that's why I read his book, which I didn't yeah. finish reading. <laughs> um, why didn't you finish it? Because I'm bad at reading. Mm, yeah, same. And, well, I, I take out books from the library, like, digitally, and you can't keep them for very long. So, like, I'm a person who will, like, start six books and read, like, a page of each one, like, so slowly, <laughs> like, over a very long time. So, like, library books that I only get to keep for six days don't really work well for that. Yeah, that makes sense. I went back, and um, I have this big Dolly book, because I was very into surrealism in, like, high school, um, just everything seemed nonsensical to me, and so I found like I found surrealism very kind of comforting. Um, so it was interesting to to pull that out and like look at his work and read more about him as a person and an artist, which I never used to like read the words in my art books. 
I've only very recently started reading the words instead of just looking at the pictures. And so that was interesting to revisit as well um, and see, um, like, I, I his work around the Spanish Civil War, I think, is so interesting and, like, doesn't, like, everyone just knows the persistence of memory. And that's not it. But, like, that's the one that, that people know. And, like, there's so much more to his work that's so much more interesting than a bunch of melting clocks, you know? Yeah. I... There was a... No, no, you go first. Oh, uh, there was a print of the persistence of memory in my elementary school art classroom. And I just remember staring at it, like, every day. And my brain was just trying to make sense of the shapes. Like, What? is that like I couldn't even recognize that they were clocks <laughs> just like what's happening in this picture and I I wonder how much of that like has shaped my brain landscape yeah. my favorite Dali thing that I've ever seen I haven't like I have not looked at many art things at all in general um I feel like that's one of the things that I might be lying to myself about is like one day I'll be smart about this because it is beautiful <laughs> and interesting and that's cool but like whatever my brain I can only do so much um, yeah we're all doing the best we can but I saw I saw an exhibit one time of his stuff and he made this pin that his lips and the teeth are pearls and it's so cool and awesome and I want it I'm googling it right now I think it's a pin. It might just be lips. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've seen this. I love it. I think it's like a brooch. Yeah. yeah. He also made a couch that's lips. And it Ooh. was uh, based on the lips of Mae West, who was an old-timey actress. Cool. Yeah. Um, I recently watch this short film called the Dali and the Cooper that uh, I forget who played Salvador Dali, but um, Noel Fielding plays Alice Cooper and yes. it's about this time and he's a great Alice Cooper, but his American accent is not great. But um, this one time Alice Cooper and Dali like hung out a bunch and Dali had Alice Cooper like stand there and like photographed him in this like 360 degree thing and created one of the world's first holograms of Alice Cooper wearing a tiara. Oh, interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, interesting uh, short film about it on Showtime. I think you can watch it. Like if you have streaming Showtime. This was the first time... Ooh, there's a video of it, of the hologram. <laughs> oh, here, is, I'm going to send you um, a portrait painted by Dali of Louise Bunuel when they were young. Aw, let's see. From 1929, I guess. Well, yeah, well, I like it. I Okay, so, like, watching... So I watched, I watched A Discreet Charm a few weeks ago, like we said, but I watched Unshinandeli today, and um, it was the first time that I really got us, or to me, it felt like like watching surrealist film felt like 
people trying to outwardly represent a bunch of anxieties from their insides, Mm -hmm. which I Mm -hmm. never really saw it. Or, like, maybe I saw that as a part of it, but, like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, this is one long stress dream. That's, yeah, right? And then that's what everything David Lynch makes is also. Yeah. Um, And all the, all the... All the things that show up, I feel like, I mean, again, like, not that I know so much about surrealist work, but in the works that I've seen, like, the the themes that show up, like, are such common things that we all hold, like, so deep inside of us and have, like, mm-hmm. great anxiety about. Um, like, Bunuel in particular, um, in addition to, like, um, you know, the church and, uh, you know, the the higher classes was super obsessed with like sexual fetishes Mm. Um, and Dali was also very fucked up on sex stuff yeah he was like terrified of sex for a long time and it was like a whole thing for him like and is is so intrinsic in all of his work yeah and so but like like yes like those are all of the things that all of us deep down are the most anxious (laughs) about you know yeah 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 and that's why I uh kind of preface this conversation by talking about like the origins of surrealism and that it like you know grew out of this time where nothing made sense and everything was so horrifying I mean like just daily life must have been like a waking nightmare um and and that that film in particular is exactly that even though it was made later but um I've I I also like in my brain can't help but compare Benwell and Lynch and like I mm. think because there's a lot of really similar. Well, that's a lineage. Well, yeah, you know, totally. like David Lynch is clearly like a direct descendant of Bunuel's work. Yeah, but and it, others, but but like you definitely can see the influence there. Like for me, watching watching Bunuel's work, like I said earlier, like it's funny, and like. And you know, the thing, because I, I did not get David Lynch for a long time, and I was like, I don't like it. It freaks me out. It just makes me feel uncomfortable and upset, and I don't like it, which is exactly what it's supposed to do. But what I didn't realize is how funny it's his also work really funny. Is. But it, yeah, but it's, like, it's actually hilarious. It's like funny but... with, a, with like glazed in horror, though. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know if it's funny glazed in horror or horror glazed in. Oh funny. yeah, I don't know which one it is. I, yeah, I think the, it depends. The, the ratio. I think it depends out, what yeah. you're looking at and what scene you're watching mm. too. So true. But it's so yeah. it's so easy to put on either one of those lenses, and if you work hard enough, you can turn it into both of those things more easily. Mm. Bunuel's work, I don't. Donuts. You can't turn into horror. Oh, I think it's very straight horror to me. Like, mm. I mean, Unchained Delu is clearly a horror movie. Yeah, but not like, in the same way, like, not in the same way that Lynch does horror. Like, No, I mean, obviously it's different, but um, it's there. It's definitely there. I think even the discreet ch- charm of the bourgeoisie has so many horror elements to it. And just that 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 feeling of unsettledness and not knowing what's going to happen next, and like, is everyone okay? Are we going to be okay? Like that kind of feeling throughout the entire film. I feel like in his film, well, at least in this film in particular, I don't care enough about the people. To be, you know, like I don't yeah. care if they get murdered. You know, like. Yeah, and you're not really supposed to either. No. 
Whereas I guess in like David Lynch's characters are so compelling that like you do care. There's always at least one that you actually care about. Yeah. Oh, I just remembered. What did I watch yesterday? Oh, I rewatched. Um, and this is highly relevant because it also has a lot of like dream nightmare elements to it. Uh, the Netflix adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House. It's like a 10 episode um, series that they did. It's so good. So, so, so good. Definitely my favorite adaptation of the book. But in it, uh, Russ Tamblin, who plays the psychiatrist in Twin Peaks, plays a psychiatrist on this show. And I was like, all right, the first time I saw this, I had not seen Twin Peaks. And now I've seen Twin Peaks. And I'm like, oh, look at this That's little funny. winky wink. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's an even worse psychi- psychiatrist in this show. Interesting. <laughs> if you can imagine. Interesting. He's pretty bad in Twin Peaks. He's pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but that actually, that series is so good and interesting. Um, and there's a, a carrot, one of the main characters, um, deals with sleep paralysis, which is a real thing that happens to some people often in the context also of narcolepsy, but not necessarily, um, which basically like when you first wake up your brain, like your brain can make these chemicals that kind of paralyze you while you're asleep. So you don't act out your dreams. And in some people, the, their brain wakes up before that chemical wears off. So their brain is awake and they're able to open their eyes, but they're, they can't move their body. And in that state, a lot of times people have like really horrifying hallucinations. And in the show, it deals with ghosts and et cetera. And so this character is seeing ghosts while experiencing sleep paralysis and somebody explains it as like your dreams spilling over into reality and um i just find that concept of like dreams spilling into wakefulness really an interesting concept that is kind of directly related to what we're talking about here realism is yeah not maybe not spilling more of a big um rush of water horrifying water into your face (laughs) okay i think we did it we did do it good job next time we're going to be talking a little bit more about surrealism we're going to be talking about frida kahlo who is very pivotal very important influence on me as an artist and also now as a disabled person um i find her to be an incredibly powerful figure and I can't wait to talk about her and we're going to watch that movie that Selma Hayek made um, and talk about that next time. Uh, Kara, do you want anyone to find you? No. Okay, cool. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at PC. You can find us on Instagram at WistfulPod. Not that we ever post anything on it anymore, do we? <laughs> no. Um, but it's there. No, sorry. Um, it is there. A, we also have a Twitter account that we don't really I use. And a Facebook tell page. tell you the last time I even opened Twitter for anything. Oh, God bless. I wish I could say the same. Uh, all right. We will talk to you next time. Bye.